Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hello, this is Ron Burgundy, and you are listening to my voice, which commands trust and respect. Guess what? My podcast is back, and that's a win for everyone. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you probably already know the deal. Each week, I bring you hard-hitting journalism and also light entertainment. I contain multitudes. Find the Ron Burgundy Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush, Friday interview edition. This is the uh, annual Chuck Goes to Max Fun Con and does some L.A. shows edition. And we're going to start this one off. I did. I uh, was able to get three episodes in the can out there. And we're going to start this off with my good friend, Adam Pranica, of the Friendly Fire podcast, of the Greatest Generation podcast, and of Seattle, Washington. Uh, Adam picked... A wonderful movie um, that is called Hard Eight. It is Paul Thomas Anderson's first film. We think uh, both agree that, and I think lovers of this film agree, it's probably underseen. Uh, this is before P.T. Anderson made a big big splash with uh, Magnolia and Boogie Nights and, you know, really became one of the uh, most revered auteurs in Hollywood. But all of it's here in Hard Eight, everyone, uh, including the beginnings of his acting company that he started to work with on many other films. Uh, really, really good movie. Uh, Adam is an awesome guy. I met Adam, I think, at, at the, one of the John Hodgman Chateau Marmont hangs, pre-Max FunCon, uh, quite a few years ago. And, uh, you know, Adam's just a great guy. He's, he's quiet, and you got to spend some time with him to get to know him. But once he trusts you, he opens up a bit, and it turns out is hysterical. I always call him the... Uh, the secret weapon of the Friendly Fire podcast, because Adam picks and chooses his times to jump in, and when he does, it's very funny, which is one of my favorite kinds. He's not a blowhard, everybody, like me. Uh, so here we go with Adam Pranica on Hard Eight. So uh, I'm going to hit the are. button just and just like get some of this. Say what? I feel like this might be something that you want. I'll list pre-roll. No, no, no. You're recording, right? I'm recording now. Oh, you weren't getting that before? So what are we drinking? <laughs> this, is a, this is a Morgan's cup. And what's in it? This is gin okay. and cucumbers. Okay, I taste and, that. And lime. A little light on the And lime, a little but... bit of simple syrup. Okay. You want to muddle all of those together mm-hmm. and give it a stir mm-hmm. and throw some cracked pepper and salt on top. Oh, nice. You need to know when to say when on that pepper. 
Chuck. Uh, I, I'm a black pepper guy. Yeah. So it's, you just have the guy at your table, like for 20 minutes, yeah. cranking that thing, <laughs> cranking that that long phallus yeah. over my table. Yeah, it's a real power move, right? <laughs> it's my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they always do look like just big giant dicks. They do. <laughs> they don't even try to obscure nope. the phallus. Nope. <laughs> Dress it up. Yeah. Uh, this is delicious. Thank you. You're I welcome. Think it's just what I needed. Yeah. I was, I'm feeling tired. Uh, well, pick me up. Yeah, and this is this is working well. I can tell already. That's good. Uh, how did you? How did the class go? Good. Great. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of you know what we got that I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. was the person in the class who was like, I just drink red wine. Right. I don't drink cocktails. Yeah. So everyone, you know, here at Max Von Con, uh, there are activity sessions during the day. There are two of them. Uh, morning session and afternoon session. The afternoon session every year, John Hodgman and I do our trivia, pub trivia. And at the same time, you and Ben Harrison, also with Friendly Fire, did a home bar class. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. How to stock and use a home bar for social situations. Nice. And it went well? It really did. That's yeah, every Everyone was really game. Cool. Yeah, like the main takeaway is don't try to convince someone to like something just because you like it. Yeah, what is, like, since people are listening to this, give me your top three home bar suggestions and tips. Well, I think, like, starting with that, I think, would be uh, if you have a friend, like, I have a friend who doesn't like agave spirits, like... Sure. This is a very close friend of mine who doesn't drink tequila. I'm not going to try to make him a tequila cocktail right. to try to get him on my side. Sure. But you really got to try this one. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's that's no good. Why even? Yeah. Uh, that would be probably tip number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, tip number two, I would say, is to pre prepare as much as possible. And by that, I mean... So if like, you're having a party. If you're having people over, you should probably have your prep done so that you're not spending your first hour cutting limes right. and making simple syrup. Right. And ideally, and I know you've run into this at Max FunCon, like <coughs> there are real live bartenders at Max FunCon who That's have right. batch cocktailed everything out mm-hmm. so that you're not getting a huge lineup when you want something to drink. Right. They're ready to to dose things out for you and send you on your way. All right. So, yeah, Tip that, number two. That's two. And what's number three? Shoot. What is tip number three? Or maybe for tip number three, what would be like a solid suggestion of things to have on hand for if you just want to have a cocktail, you know, party, um, knowing that you can't cover all the bases and make yeah. every drink under the sun, what, what's a solid like lineup of liquors and then accompaniments? You know, like you and I are men of a certain age. Okay. And I feel like we're throwing fewer and fewer ragers in Uh our life. Sure, sure. I feel like when you've got like four to six close friends, Mm -hmm. you could make that into a fun glassware situation. Okay. And my wife has been great at like collecting interesting glasses from Uh bars that go out of business and stuff. Oh, cool. I think think like if you have a cocktail that a friend has made you Mm -hmm. in a glass that is unusual... That feels really good, and I think that makes uh, that makes it an occasion. Okay, in a so fun break way. out some cool glasses. Yeah, break out the fu- like the way that your parents or grandparents hoarded the china. Right, <laughs> like use the china yeah. is is the lesson I think. Like okay. don't just don't just stash it away. Uh, 
break it out for your good friends. All right. That's great. Yeah. What's your background? Where are you from? <laughs> uh, I live in Seattle at the moment. I was born in Southern California. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, moved away fairly early in my life. I barely remember it. Mm-hmm. Uh, moved across country to Virginia Beach. Okay. Uh, where my dad uh, worked in video production. Oh, And cool. then uh, moved us cross country again to Seattle. Uh-huh. Uh, also for my dad's video production. What kind of video production? Like corporate. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they had that back then. They did. He was probably pioneering with the big uh, the camera that you put on your shoulder with the bag that was oh yeah the tapes on the other shoulder. Yeah. 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 The the large format. Right. <laughs> beta cam. Yeah. So is that how you got into filmmaking? Is through pops? Um. I think my father and I have very different levels of engagement in video and film. Okay. And by that, I mean, like, I think what inspired me about my dad's work is that he made it an example of something you can make a career out of, Mm -hmm. but you rarely ever saw the art or the joy in it. Oh. Um, Like... I think corporate video. I worked in corporate video for many years, and it is a conflict between you and your client to like to feel good about the creative. Mm -hmm. And I think you're rarely satisfied with how that shakes out because ultimately, you're. uh, I mean, you're not making that decision. You're serving your client, right? And that can, over a number of years, like that adds up. Yeah, that adds up away. into, like, I think something that was super instructive about my relationship to my dad happened when I was in college, and uh, which I don't know about you, but I saw maybe the most amount of films I've ever seen in those four years of college. I was constantly going to the movies, and this was yeah. between 97 and 2001, 2002, which was a really interesting time in movies. Yeah. And... I don't remember the movie I went to see with my dad. My dad had come to visit me at school, and we went out to see a movie, and I was just, I was excitedly talking his ear off about this film that we were going to see. Right. And on and on, I would go about, like, this is going to be great. This is by a filmmaker I love. This is why this is important. Yeah. And he stopped me, and he said, uh, it's just a movie. Oh, man. And it totally shut me down. Yeah. And I think that was very emblematic of what a corporate filmmaker gets beaten into. Right. I want to believe that there was joy in him and Uh creativity in him when he, like, worked on that craft. Yeah. But by the end of it, by the end of her career... I think you might be turned into a person for whom it is just a movie. And I never wanted to lose that kind of magic. Right. I never wanted to lose that relationship Mm -hmm. with film. And I've tried my hardest to to keep it, to to defend it. Now, do you still do corporate video or what's your main line of filmmaking at this point? Well, I did for a long time, but uh-huh. uh, the podcast projects that I do have, have like elbowed into my life and my time in such a way that... Are you full-time podcasting now? I am. Oh, dude, congratulations. Yeah. That's great. It's been a big year for me. Yeah, that's fucking great. 
So uh, I'm one of the hosts of Greatest Gen, which is a Star Trek podcast. Yeah, how did generation? Uh, how did that start? What was the seed of, as as John Roderick calls, your Star Trek show? Yeah, <laughs> uh, John introduced me and Ben, and and you knew John through Seattle. I've known John for almost 20 years. Wow! And I am not an old man. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were just, just a through kid. just through the Seattle music scene. Uh huh. And I was dabbling in independent film for a long time. Uh And uh, if anyone has ever met John Roderick before, I think you would be captivated by the idea of a film about him. Sure. And that was a feeling that I had when I first met him. Really? It's like, I want to make a a documentary about you? That's how I felt. And uh, I actually began shooting that film for a long time and and worked on it for many years. And... uh, it's, I think a lot of documentary filmmakers, lot, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that it has not been released and no one has ever seen it is a sign of a couple of things. I think in the late 90s and the, and the early and mid 2000s, there was such a sea change in the technology used to make independent film yeah. that most people who had shot on the industry standard digital video camera systems were right. happy with how things went. And by the time 2003, 2004 rolled around, all of a sudden you're looking really bad right. on screen. And I knew... For shooting what, like mini DV? Yeah. 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 And so as time went on and the story went on, I became less and less satisfied with how things were looking. And Yeah, when technology is outpacing your film, then you're... you're it's hard. Yeah, it's tough. It's hard, especially because a documentary asks a lot of you emotionally and with your time. Like it is obviously unpaid work. Sure. And if what you're looking at is not living up to your own internal expectations, it's hard to reconcile. And so when it came time to like near a assembly, I just wasn't really happy with the film and I didn't have an ending that I like. And I am such a self-editor that I finally reached a point where I knew I wasn't going to put it out. Right. Maybe there will be a time where that happens, where all of a sudden there's like a nostalgia for for DV. Right. And it won't look so weird. Right. But for right now, it's not in that place. Gotcha. And so what that turned into was a really enriching and fun friendship with our friend John Roderick. Right. And it's also turned into a podcast project called Friendly Fire, which we do. Right. And then he introduced you to Ben. And he did. How, did, how did Greatest Gen, where was that seed? You guys aren't big Star Trek guys even, are you? Uh, we are. That, you are? That started as a, you know, John looked at me and he looked at Ben and was like, you guys should be friends uh-huh. because we're dorks. Yeah. And he said, uh, you should hang out. And so Ben was up in Seattle for a John Roderick show that mm-hmm. I was at. And after the show, we hung out afterwards and hit it off. That's great. Got along great. And uh, it was the start of a great friendship. And that friendship revealed a mutual admiration for a television show that we grew up watching. Oh, okay. So you were really into it. We were. Yeah, okay. this, was not, this was not a thing we had to study or fake or... Gotcha. Or, yeah, this was... This totally became something organic. And, and really kind of blew up, right? It did. Yeah. It was something that I never thought anyone would listen to. Uh-huh. That's so cool. 
And yeah, it made the case for itself in that way, in a really great way, because when you're a freelancer and you are a freelance video producer, especially, uh-huh. uh, there are good times and there are really thin times mm-hmm. and it's scary. And uh, the podcast yeah, made a case for game. itself in a number of ways. One of them is that like we're listener supported and it's nice to like have a wellspring <laughs> of yeah. people who love your work and support you through it. That's cool. Yeah. And now it's to the point where you guys are going out on tour and you do rooms like three, 400 people, yeah, which is amazing. It is incredible. I never thought that, that we would be there or that I would be there. Yeah. It's I so hate, fun. I uh, hate that I missed you guys in Atlanta last time. Yeah. Terrible timing. I was, I think, doing a show of my own in another city. Or I was yeah. out of town at the very least. I just can't remember. Yeah, we would have loved for show. you to have been there. Uh, like Atlanta is one of those places. Like there are many cities in the country that have a 300 to 400 cap room. Atlanta doesn't. Atlanta has a bar. Yeah. With something Where'd close. You the Earl? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. It's so much fun. Yeah. Atlanta's, it's weird. We don't have. Um, I guess there's the uh, SCAD show theater for Savannah College of Art and Design, which is about 300, but it's not like a, like you got to know that there's a show there that you want to go see. It's not like a, a prominent venue that books like three or four or five times a week. Yeah. It's very sporadic. So yeah, Atlanta weirdly has a dearth of sort of those, you know, small to mid-sized venues. I wish I spent more time there. Honestly, yeah. we just cool. sort of barnstormed in and then took sure. off. But one of these days, we'll do a show that you can attend, and then we can have some quality Atlanta hangs. Yes, that would absolutely. Be great. Uh, and then Friendly Fire was born. Jeez, I remember two Max Fun Cons ago. You guys, I think you were there for the pitch. Yeah, you guys said it, or, or had already recorded a pilot, or was it the pitch? I think two years ago, we were still trying to pitch John on the idea. Okay. Was there a lot of arm twisting there? (laughs) At that point, I think the pitch was very Roderick-centric, which was like, let's hear John talk. Let's hear John tell war stories and tell us about old war movies. And what it is now is not that. Yeah, It feels like all three of us... Uh, bring something very different to that table for sure it's a great dynamic because john is a uh is really a brilliant historian like really knows his shit to like a staggering degree yeah and uh he's always good to rely on for historical uh framework yeah on your show but you do each bring something different but because I like generation that you for that. Yeah, like we are we are of different ages yeah. and I forget a lot that that Ben is younger than me by uh, many years. Ben? I think Ben is 5 years younger than me. How old are you? 40. Okay. So yeah, Ben's and John 35. is 50. Yeah. So 35, 40 and 50. So we really approach it from different Yeah. positions. Well, and he plays the role of old curmudgeon gen xer yeah he he revels in that he is the show's grouch (laughs) which is great and welcome yeah yeah because i think like i'm sure you've run into this like there is a there's an instinct to say that everything is great right and every film should get an award right and everyone's really trying hard to make something good Uh and john really disabuses us both of that yeah come review time and that's really welcome it's nice to get that that mix yeah yeah I love it, man. I mean, it's one of, jeez, uh, one of three or four shows that I'm uh, always up to date on. Wow. That I listen to within a couple of days of release. 
I don't. I listen to uh, all the episodes, and even if I don't know the film, because some people can't listen to their friends' podcasts. I've heard people say that. Yeah, I'm the opposite. Yeah. I love it because I feel like I'm hanging out with my pals. I'm with you. So yeah, I, I listen to Judge way. John Hodgman and Jesse because yeah. that show is as close as it's going to get to hanging out with those guys. Agreed. And same with you guys. Like, you're yourself on the show. Yeah. I'm going to start listening to Greatest Gen. I've never oh, seen an great. episode of Star Trek. Yeah. But I'm going to start diving in there. That's I'm a sure very I'll have fun with it. That's a very special person that we meet after a show that says uh, <laughs> I've never watched any of the movies right, or any of guys. the shows. <laughs> yeah, I just like hearing some friends talk. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, I certainly don't like. A lot of times, I have seen the war film, but I'm definitely not the guy who hears what movie you're going to talk about, and if I haven't seen it, go out and watch it before I listen. Right. That kind of participation is great. I'm sure when people do that. And same with Movie Crush. Yeah. I'm sure there are people I try to say ahead of time what movie. And I think if people go out and watch it beforehand, if they haven't seen it, that's great. But I, th- I definitely think you still get out of a lot out of a smart, fun conversation between people. It's really about expectations, right? I think a lot of people approach the idea of a, of a war movie podcast and they think it's going to be a certain way. Right. And it is really like I'm shocked every week at how funny the show is. Yeah. Week in and week out. Yeah, even for a film like Come and See. Yeah. And you guys joked about like, geez, how are we going to even do this episode? Because that film is so, you know, devastating. I think but you, it was still a funny episode. You need to protect yourself yeah. somehow. And that's the way I've always done it. Like I've always laughed my way through the hardest parts <laughs> of my life. Right. Yeah. The sad clown. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always say you're the secret weapon on Friendly Fire. Oh, that that's nice of you to say. Because you pick your moments, and uh, yeah. I don't know. I think they're always the funniest bits. <laughs> Have you ever done a show, like, uh, I find it's very different to go from Greatest Gen, which is a two-host show, to Friendly Fire, which is a three-host show. For you? It's yeah. Uh-huh. Like, it, uh, it feels very different to me, and a lot, like, it allows me to be... Uh, more strategic and yeah. cutting with what I say. Right. When it's just two people, I mean, it's a yeah, you like you really weight. share the weight. Yeah, for differently. sure. Well, I, I will say that the few times I've done uh, a movie crush with two other people, it's been a little tougher. Yeah. Um, yet when we do our friendly fire thing with all four of us, I like have no problem with that. It feels great. And there are visual cues. We're all in the room together. Yeah. So there's sort of that thing that happens where you're sort of looking around like, all right, I can see Adam's about to talk next. I like this tradition that we're doing of doing a movie crush crossover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you And I like that we're barefoot right now. (laughs) Like just to paint a picture for the listener. (laughs) Yeah, we're in my cabin. Yeah. Uh, Barefoot. Yeah. Drinking gin. Feels nice. Uh, I'm still a little stoned Mm. from earlier. Fun. (laughs) I, re- I did not smoke anymore before this, although I might. Yeah. You never know. We could do whatever we want here. It's your show. Here. That's what's happening here at, yeah. at Lake Arrowhead. Yeah. One of the most... John and I were talking this morning. It's so fucking beautiful here. It really And is. I've been here so many years, and sometimes I forget to just sort of stop and look around at how gorgeous this spot is. It is amazing. Really Especially lovely. like when you start at the bottom of the mountain and you can barely see the top of it for yeah. smog yeah yeah you get up here you get above it uh-huh it is paradise yeah if you guys ever get a chance to go to lake arrowhead california go 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 agreed and come fact, to max fun con yeah, come to max fun 
Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join, Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly... Join us! Bad be crazy! But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please... Join us! On Spotify. Visit spotify.com slash lastpodcast to listen free. So you agreed, sort of, just at, off the top of my head here. I was like, let's do a filmmaker series, because you picked P.T. Anderson's first movie, Hard Eight, after struggling with whether or not to go with Boogie Nights. Yeah. And you thought, well, this one's a little underseen, so maybe we can shine a light on it. Yeah. And I was like, well, let's just do a filmmaker series, because you're one of the few people I feel like I can record remotely with and have it be fine. Right. Um. So that's what we're gonna do. I can hold up my end of the bargain. And I think we should just go in order. Okay. Uh, most All the movie um, filmmaker series, I'm kind of jumping around. But since we're starting with Hard Eight, I, I say we just go in order. That's appropriate. Yeah, I would, lo- I would love that. Yeah, and he's he's one of your one of your favorites, right? He so. really is. If if not one of, like, he's the favorite. Yeah. I think he's great. So let's talk about him for a minute, just in general. Um, and through the lens of Hard Eight, I guess, like... To to come out onto the scene with such a ambitious and not ambitious that this was some big movie, but it does not smack of a first film or an indie film, and it was both. Yeah, it feels he he was always ambitious with his camera work yeah. and with his Scorsese inspired uh, use of the dolly and moving the camera around. Yeah. He wasn't like, all right, let's just lock it down on sticks. Like like Wes Anderson's first film with Bottle Rocket, let's say. He was very brave, yeah. I would say, like from jump, like fully formed. As a kid, like how old was he when he directed this? Like in his 20s. He had to be his mid-20s. Yeah. yeah. Which is nuts. Yeah, and I like, like one of the stories about the production of this film is that like he fought a studio system for his cut. <clears throat> Wow. Like, like he made a he made a two and a half hour assembly, and Reicher was like, "Fuck that, yeah. no." And then he was like, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna submit to Khan, and I'm gonna give them my cut." And then Khan was and the one no who just sort of like that. blessed the film yeah. and the director's cut of it. And then what's a studio gonna do? Right. And I love the, the like that the audacity a of, of a filmmaker to be like to be like that. Yeah. Like I'm that confident in my vision. Yeah, and an auteur from the beginning, too. Yeah. Uh, Like, uh, one of my favorite things to do is see first films of great filmmakers and see if you can see that DNA and that genius. And sometimes you can't. Yeah. Most of the times you can, um, especially if it's, uh, well, it's got to be a movie of a certain size. Like, you see the DNA in a Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket. Right. Right. But he clearly didn't have 
the resources he needed to play in the world that he really wanted to play in. Look, I love Wes Anderson as much as anyone, Yeah, but I never watch Bottle Rocket. I love Bottle Rocket. I, I'm not saying that I don't. Yeah. But in terms of rewatchability, I think that matters a lot. Yeah. And I rewatch Heart 8 quite a bit. Yeah. So this film, the original title was Sydney. Yeah. Uh, which I'm sure you knew. Um, and it stars uh, Philip Baker Hall, who... And uh, the sacks under his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> which which gets second billing. <laughs> don't you just want to like curl up under one of his oh, eyes man. and go, go take a so nap? great. Yeah. Well, the other thing that impressed me at this movie is like uh the 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 presence of mind as a 25 or year old or whatever to cast a Philip Baker Hall. Yeah. Um and for a like, Philip Baker Hall to be game yeah. for punk kid totally. Paul Thomas Anderson. Totally. Like and to allow himself to be directed. Yeah is great yeah yeah and not just cast him though but like to hitch his wagon to him yeah and be like you're gonna be in magnolia you're gonna be in boogie nights like he was a kid and he knew yeah like i didn't even know who philip baker hall was before this i don't think yeah and he like outside of seinfeld or whatever but yeah yeah, like you and me both (laughs) great seinfeld role yeah yeah (laughs) but uh he he was the uh the library cop right he was in seinfeld (laughs) i love that Paul Thomas Anderson had the instinct to create a, a team of players. Yes. Like the Wes Anderson players, for yeah, example. Yeah, like, yeah. And he would take these actors with him uh-huh. on uh, throughout his career. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things. And I think when that doesn't happen, I think it, it a lot of times means that the director doesn't have a, uh, I don't know, want to say camaraderie, but sometimes it might be even combative. And you just cycle through actors. I, I really love it when a director has a, a company yeah, that, I of agree. players that they take along for the ride. It makes me feel good about that director and their ability to cultivate a relationship. Yeah. Because you get a lot of like... Uh, <sighs> you get a lot of, repu- of directors with reputations for being real ball breakers. Mm-hmm who are real my way or the highway types, like the David L. Sullivan reputation of like, of like being people who just cream their actors. Yeah. And I love the idea of someone who can get great performances while also being a great hang. Right. And that's PT Anderson. Yeah. You would think. I mean, I would, I would think, and you, and you hear these actors talk about him in such a way that like, it's a whenever, wherever situation. Yeah. And so in this case, he has Philip Baker Hall. He had Philip Seymour Hoffman. We'll get to his role in a bit. Um, who he used again, John C. Riley, which he used again and again. Uh, Melora Walters is even at the very end of this. Yeah. Hardly recognizable as the, the sex worker. Who is like the anchor of Magnolia. Yeah. Anchor of Magnolia and also in Boogie Nights. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, did he use Gwyneth again? I don't think so, did he? No. 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 And Gwyneth Paltrow is so great in this movie. She really is. Like, something has happened to her her. reputation lately. Totally agreed. But you watch her in this film, and she is really spectacular. Yeah, you kind of forget, like, oh, wow, she, she was a really good actor. Yeah. Um, and for better or for worse, say whatever you want to about her now and her reputation as a pain in the ass or just kind of a bougie she has this rich in housewife. her wife yeah yeah but yeah for her to like 
when she was younger, she had some really great roles. Yeah, agreed. And this is for sure one of them. Yeah, and this this era is like peak Paltrow, right? Yeah. Like she was working a lot, taking a lot of risks with her career. Yep. Doing interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the movie begins with uh, what I call the drone dong. Uh, that sound. Yeah. That doom. Clementine's bong, dirge. Doom. Yeah. Bong. Which comes back in Boogie Nights. Yeah, exactly. During. Uh, well, which scene is it in Boogie Nights? Is it? It's when Dirk uh, gets cross, into the into the pickup truck yeah, in the parking lot, and he cross cuts that whole. Yeah. Oh God, I can't wait to talk about Boogie Nights. Me too. Yeah. yeah. But this this film opens with that effect, and uh, it's just such a just an eerie tone setter that I guess he came up with. Is that his creation? Do you know? Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to start this film with uh, Hard Eight, a film by Paul Thomas Anderson, smash into movie. And one of its producers said, I get producer credit before the title, like... Oh, right. And, like, made that happen. Really? Yeah. So that's unfortunate. (laughs) Oh. So he didn't have the clout at that point, even, of course. Yeah, I mean, he's... uh, This is his first film. He doesn't get to make that call. Do you know what the budget was for this? I don't. I have a feeling you'll tell me. No, I don't even know. I thought I thought you would have looked that up. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, we'll look it up. I bet I bet it was, um, I bet it was not as much as you think, because it's pretty contained. What I read was that he used some Boogie Nights money on this to finish it. Oh, interesting. Isn't that interesting? So he had not finished this film when he started pre-production and got a green light for Boogie Nights? I mean, he had been seen as a wunderkind, like, early on. Yeah, rightfully. And had already, like, cemented a deal that would take him past this. Gotcha. So I'm reading $3 million budget, and unfortunately, sadly, a $222,000 box office. So a criminally underseen film. Yeah. And... Like I sort of understand because uh, it's a film that's never put out in that's never been put out in, on Blu-ray, yeah. even though Paul Thomas Anderson has said this is something that he's wanted to do. Right, and it's not a film that's commented on very often by PTA. Yeah, uh, and I don't think it's out of any sort of shame because I think it's a great film. Oh yeah, uh, I think I would never want to speak for him, but I think the conflicts around the film and his cut versus a studio versus a title that he wanted that he didn't get. Right. It's got to be hard to look back on this and think about all the <laughs> things that you wanted it to be and yeah. and weren't. Yeah, because it's interesting. The title originally going to be Sydney, like even just calling it that, it it's uh, a very 70s filmmaking thing. Yeah. To title the movie after just a character. Yeah. Like Norma Ray or, uh, uh, oh, I guess Alice doesn't live here anymore. It was longer than that, but Shaft. Yeah. <laughs> but like Sydney is, it's a character study about this man yeah. is really what the film is. Yeah. And they call it Heart Eight, which is fine. That's a good title in the end. I get it. It's snappy. But Sydney, it's about Philip Baker Hall. It's about this mysterious guy. Yeah. Who you get little bits of information about him doled out throughout the film. Until so you get a complete picture, only in the very end, yeah, about who this guy is. Uh, you know, he has children, yeah, which was a, I think something I'd forgotten even, 
because they don't linger on that. And there's no. not like, oh, well, aren't you in touch? Or what, what happened? Was there a falling out? He just very briefly mentions that he has two kids yeah. that he's really not in touch with anymore. This is such an amazing film for Philip Baker Hall. He is uniquely able to oh, so good. connote a feeling of like paternal love yeah. and distance, paternal distance at the same time. Yeah. That's that's magical. And John C. Riley is uniquely suited to being like kind of a dopey son. Yeah. A like a son who needs a father. <clears throat> yeah. And this is a through line, this is a leitmotif that you get in a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson films. Like yeah. The family that you make. It's Burt versus, Reynolds and, and Dirk Diggler. Yeah. The same thing. Versus the family that you're born with. Uh-huh. And this is, a, this is something that's been interesting to me for my entire life. Like, yeah. I love the idea of building close relationships with, with my friends right. that feel like families. Yeah, same. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and, and going back and watching this again, I think it hadn't occurred to me that through line through his movies. Yeah. Um, and I guess things get a little, well... Actually, come to think of it, like there will be blood. There's a lot of weird paternal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, these are not well, smooth, well run families yeah, where well, everyone's happy <laughs> ever. Yeah. yeah and maybe that's the thing that, that makes them feel the most familial, right? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, John C. Riley in this movie is so great. Yeah. And I think it's very easy to take him for granted as an actor. Agreed. Because he just seems like. He can go out there and be that goof, <clears throat> like in Step Brothers or even in Boogie Nights. He was sort of yeah. a goof and silly. He makes me cry in Magnolia because he is such a dope in that film. But oh, when he God. loses his gun, yeah, man, like I can't like that scene really devastates me. Yeah, he really gets to the heart of someone who wants to be good and yeah. wants to be seen as capable. Yeah, and just can't quite make it. Yeah. Yeah, and especially in this movie, man. He's yeah. just like... And, and you wonder what's going on with him and why he was chosen. Of course, we f- we'll we'll talk about why later on. Yeah. But uh, he's just such a sad... Like, he has no shot on his own. What I like about... Like, this movie is successful in some ways that so other, so many other films aren't in that you sometimes get reflected character development yeah. with someone... And the John C. Riley character doesn't tell his own story very much in this film. Right. It is Philip Baker Hall's <clears throat> reflection of him uh-huh. that does. It is Clementine telling Philip Baker Hall about yeah. how he is worshipped by him. Right. In a way, the John C. Riley character is kind of a cipher. Yeah. And it, he's being described by these other characters. But I think one of the magic tricks of this film is that first scene, I don't know, how much of a gambler are you, would you say? Do you enjoy gambling in casinos or playing a card game? Yeah, sure. I I always have been. Yeah. And that scene is utterly intoxicating oh, yeah, man. in the casino yeah. where Sydney teaches the John C. Riley character how to turn ships into cash. Yeah, like the most basic grift. Yeah. Is is what he teaches him the yeah. dumbest lowest level grift, yeah. and he teaches him this whole thing, and he works on this thing all night. And I never realized until I saw it again the other day. Uh, the payoff of that is 
he's in this shitty hotel room. Yeah. It's not yeah, like, like it's not even a reward. Suite. Yeah. It's just like a place for him to sleep that because night. Because the film jumps in time and then you see what a really nice suite looks like later exactly. on, which still not great. Right. But at first it's just like, yeah, you do all this work catching yeah. these chips with this grift and you just get like a fucking double two queen beds and like a few pay-per-view movies on the house. You know what Loki my favorite part of that of the first third of the film is, is when John C. Reilly goes in for the shave in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. And the bathroom attendant is like, yeah. looking good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's not <laughs> saccharine or bullshit or yeah. whatever. It's just two grown men in a bathroom yeah. commenting on the differences a shave can can make. Yeah, and well, and he puts up a bit of a fight with uh, Philip Baker Hall with Sydney. He goes like, yeah. oh, I was going to try and grow a beard. That is, and he's just, that is every dope in yeah. college I've ever known. <laughs> like, why do you look like that? You look like shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm kind of working on my beard. But Philip Baker Hall, he just never, he never entertains that for a second. There's no debate. He's just like, like I said, go in the bathroom, clean yourself up. People make a big deal about like how much fun it is to have Mr. T as your GPS but like, if there's ever a time to make Philip Baker Hall oh, God. the voice of your AI, yeah, that would be. So I would great. obey every command yeah. <laughs> from that voice. And how could you not? And yeah. that's great casting, right? Because John C. Riley is malleable mm-hmm. and he's listening, mm-hmm. but also there's an authority to Philip Baker Hall that yeah. is crucial to this film working. There is, and you really, I think that's so magnified in the scene where we first meet uh, Jimmy, yeah, the Samuel Jackson character, because uh, what's what's uh, is it? Was John C. Riley's name in the movie? Is it John? I think it's John. I think it is John. He brings Jimmy around, I think, to kind of uh, kind of impress Sydney, yeah. but he quickly realizes like that he's made a mistake. And that Jimmy is crass for Sydney. Doesn't doesn't that sound familiar though? Like, haven't you, like, when I have introduced a friend to another friend, and you're like, "Oh shit, I never should have done this." Yeah, and you're thinking like, "Oh, you're gonna love each other." Yeah, it's like, oh boy, there is such a soft <laughs> power in Sydney in that moment. Yeah, like that whole. I love that it was never forgotten when when uh, when Philip Baker Hall like asks if Jimmy works in the parking lot. Yeah. That is such a low-key, massive cut on a person. Yeah. When Jimmy says he works security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And uh, Sydney's like, I work inside the casino. And Like, I'm an inside guy. Jimmy says it then, and he says it later when he is the most angry. Yeah, he does. He he reiterates that. Yeah. Um, And I love just how frank Sydney is. There's that one great line when John C. Riley goes, yeah, Jimmy, he thinks he doesn't like him. He goes, I don't. Yeah. I even with my closest friends, I have a hard time being that honest about mutual friends. Oh, you yeah. know, Sydney is nothing but honest. It is. It's amazing. He's yeah. he's utterly honest, but he has so much to hide at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, what a like. Can you imagine being twenty five years old and making this film? It's it's such a mature. It's. Utterly film. confident. Yeah. And it shows an awareness of adult relationships that seems impossible as a, like, <clears throat> yeah. I was in, I was and remain an idiot about relationships to people, uh-huh. but as a 25 year old, um, I cannot geez. imagine having the, the sophistication enough to write parts like this. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would have been, I wasn't even writing scripts back then, but 
at 25 would have been like, oh, I guess I'll write a movie about like two guys in school, like they can't get laid or something like that. Yeah. It'll be funny. Yeah. And like, I would have not have had the sophistication. I still don't to write something this good. That soft power that Sydney has is, yeah. I think about it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a great character. And the way he loves Clementine yeah. is so unique. Like, I feel like a lot of movies would fuck this up, right? Uh-huh. Like, they would unintentionally make Sydney creepy, yep. with Clementine especially. Yeah. And there is never a moment where that's on the table, up to and especially when Clementine is in, in John's bed. Yeah. And Clementine asks Sydney yeah, if he wants you, to fuck her. Yep. That scene also could turn bad, and not mm-hmm. because Sydney would accept such an offer, but like Sydney's reaction to that could be yeah. so much worse. And because it's so paternal and loving, yeah, there's so much love in him for these broken characters. Yeah, it's really special what he's able to pull off, and it's a sophistication that someone of Paul Thomas Anderson's age at the time seems like magic. Yeah, and you don't know what's going on, like, you know, that he has right. A son and a daughter yeah. that he is not in touch with because there's a menace to him. And you're probably thinking, well, he probably has done something bad yeah. in his life. And we don't know it yet. And then he gets these surrogate children that he really is trying to make amends and do right by. So clearly from the very beginning, he's trying to take care of Clementine. He says things very specifically like, I'm giving you all that I have. Yes, Everything that I have, I'm giving to you. And that is such a specificity yeah. that really dials up uh, his magnanimity. Yeah. Like, and again, like that could be portrayed in a way that is hostile, like yeah. that sort of hostile love. Yeah. Especially from an older person. Yeah. There's something about the mix of Philip Baker Hall and these other actors and the way he reads a line. Yeah. That just works. Yeah. Yeah, and he does that. I mean, it would become a hallmark of PTA. Uh, he has an interesting melody to his dialogue. Yeah. Uh, that's almost musical at times. Yeah. And the Coen brothers kind of have that sometimes. Yeah. Well, they will repeat things, or and it would become a hallmark in PTA's work. But uh, he, like, Sidney will say something and then say, like, do you understand what I'm saying to you? Right. And reiterate things. And yeah. it's just very lyrical. It's interesting. I do this not because of this, but yeah. because of this. Yeah, it's really, it, it's not a very naturalistic way to write. No, and it would clang, I feel like, in another actor or in another movie. Yeah. And it yeah. really works it here. It fucking works, man. Yeah. And and he early on to, was just with his uh, insert shots that he would become known for. Yeah. Uh, they just, I don't know, man, there's, they add so much just to see a close up of the cup of coffee and the cigarette butts and the ashtray on the table in the diner just instructs of where we are so well. This is a look that he would carry forward for his entire career. Yeah. Those three shots to establish a scene. Yeah. he does. And then we're in three. on the characters and that rule, he sort of has his own private rule of threes to uh-huh. establish a scene that I've come to just really love and appreciate. Yeah, it is always three, isn't it? Yeah. Three little insert shots. Also, I don't know how you feel about diners, but this is a great yeah. diner movie. It's a, one of the great diner movies. There are a couple of great diners in <laughs> Seattle, and I think yeah. the reason I love diners is Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Those, those old brown uh, hourglass mugs. Uh-huh. Uh, a, like you can't smoke in diners in Seattle anymore, but right. the, but like the vinyl booth, yeah, against a window, 
Yeah, and these guys that never go in there to eat anything. Yeah. It's like it's always a cup of coffee and some cigarettes and like maybe a piece of pie or something. This film tells you fairly early on that like that PTA is a director with style, but he is not stylish. Yeah. Like that that cut in the car when John C. Riley moves to the front seat. Yeah. Like that's flashy for another director. Right. But it's just style for PTA. Yeah, yeah. And I love that a ton. And there are some flourishes in this film that are like that. Yeah. Like it's letting you know that there's someone who's who uh-huh. who's like thinking more about this stuff than usual. Yeah. But he's not throwing it in your face. Yeah, and he also does that other thing too that I notice in all his films where he'll have the dialogue and the score ramping up in a crescendo yeah. uh, of intensity. Like, the way they're speaking, it matches the music. And it's really like, I'm sure other people have done that, but it feels like such a Paul Thomas Anderson thing. He really has a command of a score's relationship to the film. And, like, there's never been a more incestuous relationship than the one in Magnolia where they're like playing off of each other but later on when he's doing films like uh, There Will Be Blood the score to that film is almost an anti-score yeah oh yeah where it's almost a feeling instead of music yeah and that is something that I feel like he's really doubled down on yeah. in his films lately. And it, and it gives you such a feeling of discomfort oh, yeah. in, in moments where you should feel that way. Uh-huh. I think he really is onto something there. And yeah. Clementine's, Clementine's uh, Bells, I think, is the first instance of that. Like, when this film opens, <clears throat> that drone yeah. informs the rest of his career yep. in that way. Yeah. Because there is something skin crawly about how that plays out. Yeah. And then it'll do something like Punch Drunk, which uh the music in that movie is yeah. is like so key as well, but so different. Right. Than other things. And he usually works with the great John Bryan. Yeah. Uh, we need to shout him out of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. Yeah. He's and a big part Amy of Mann it. is such a big part of yeah. of his, of his films also. Amy Mann who I just saw like uh, 20 minutes ago. The greatest. She's I love Max Funcon. Yeah, she's here at Max Fun. Yeah. Amy Mann and fucking Ted Leo. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, I love how, uh, this is just a little funny side note, but how when John C. Riley tells the story about the matchbook that caught fire in his pocket, he's telling the story that he just thinks is so great and how little fucking time Sydney has for it. He lets him get through the story, but it's not like, oh my God, really? I mean, there's zero comment on it. He's just like, okay. Well. It's the idiosyncrasy <laughs> of a dope. Yeah. Like, I don't use matches guy yeah. is the guy who is substituting an idiosyncrasy for a, a, like having a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the wrong hands, like that's dopey and dumb. But yeah. the cutaway gets me every time. Yeah. It's so much fun. Oh, it is. That one cutaway where it's, yeah. ah, it's like... P.T. Anderson did do a lot of visual gags, so, like, for him to do that. But in fairly quick succession, he does the move to the front seat and the match gag. Yeah, that's true. And then true. he doesn't fuck around with uh, with cut comedy right. for the rest of the film, which yeah, I think is good. Like, it's true. restrained. Yeah. Uh, I thought the other interesting thing about the character of Sidney is, is there's um, how he simulta- simultaneously has menace and kindness. Yeah. And you don't know, you're sort of uncomfortable as a viewer because you get the feeling when John C. Riley at the very beginning sort of hitches his train to him, 
it's like he, this guy's being nothing but kind. So why does it feel like he's making a deal with the devil? Yeah, and that is I. This is a way that I feel quite a bit. Like I'm immediately suspicious of kindness uh-huh. if it's coming from someone that I don't know. Yeah, and this is a way that this film makes you feel uncomfortable from the start. Yeah, and. I think it's great that you see every part of the spectrum to Sydney in this film. Uh-huh. You see him benevolent in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You see him scared when Jimmy pulls a gun on him. That's one of the most fucked up parts of this movie. Yeah. Because you have seen him in nothing but complete control. Yeah. And when he's fucking scared, it's like hard to watch. It is because he feels like your dad. Oh, God. Yeah. He totally pivots into some into a character you want to care for. Yeah, man. Even though for the first hour he's been taking care of you yep. and the characters that you like. Yeah, that's why it's so hard to watch, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then when he flips the switch and suddenly he's the guy waiting in the dark for oh, Jimmy, yeah. he he is a f- like fully shaded character. He contains yeah. the entire spectrum. Yeah, I mean, you see a, a role like this and you're like, all right, he could have easily won a Best Actor award yeah. for this. Yeah, But, I mean, the whole film was ignored i think i mean yeah it made so little splash yeah uh robert ridgely's in it too speaking of in the company so great who, just a and, little bit part yep and who he and boogie nights was a guy who uh yeah emily and i the quote, colonel yeah the colonel emily and i quote all the time yeah one of the things that we uh movie lines that we use on each other a lot is when someone says something obvious we'll go Oh, you think so, doctor? <laughs> me too. The same. And no one gets it. It's like a oh, little thing for me. Oh, yeah. you think so, doctor? Yeah. <laughs> we say that all the fucking time. So great. So great. And it's funny, early on in the movie when Sydney tells John, it's a really good good line, uh, never ignore another man's courtesy. And I just, because of his voice, I wanted that to be followed with, I like simple things like yeah. lollipop in my mouth and butter in my ass. <laughs> I love the idea of taking a legacy actor like him and putting those words in his mouth. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about Boogie Nights. Oh, yeah. But uh, Hard Eight is such an important and great film. Yeah. And it's not just a, you should really see where Paul Thomas Anderson came from, like throw it into your mix. Yeah. It is on its own really and legitimately a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. And Sam Jackson, like this is one of my favorite Sam Jacksons. Uh, sort of echoes to Jackie Brown. Like he yeah. does the, yeah. when he does the small time hood thing. Yeah. Not even Jules. Like Jules is even a little too polished. Right. There's something about this level, like the security guard uh, guy who turns out has some compromising information on He's Sydney. legitimately dangerous. And I think a scene that's so instructive about his, like, where he is in his head is that he takes the money and he gambles it. Yeah. He doesn't use it to better himself in any way. He uses it to play craps. Yeah. And you know everything you need to know about Jimmy in that moment. Uh Uh-huh. Like, not only does he have the balls to hold up Sydney, Mm -hmm. which takes incredible balls. Yeah. But that he would just blow it at a craps table. Yeah. Betting the hard way. Right. Yeah, yeah. Taking the hard eight. Yeah. Uh, was that a s- stolen shot? Was that Steadicam shot? A stolen shot? I mean... Where they go through the casino like that? In the commentary track for this film, uh-huh. Paul Thomas Anderson says you would have to be fucking crazy to do any sort of film in a casino. And 
like that he does it and he pulls it off and he does long tracking shots there constantly in yeah. this film. I think might be like a flex that he's doing. So these those were all extras and that was all yeah. blocked and set up. Yeah. Wow. Cuz it felt like and I knew that I knew it had to have been pretty small budget. I was like, did he just fucking like sneak a camera in and steal the shot? There's such a That's look really to dumpy casino yeah. that evokes such a feeling. Oh yeah. You know? Like the the downtown casino. The and one, you like, basically open with that feeling and it informs yeah. everything else. Yeah. Like every dingy hotel room you end up in with Clementine. Yeah. Every scene of gambling. Like uh-huh. it's just These aren't the high rollers. It's sixty percent fun and the the other forty percent is dark and yeah. menacing. That's Vegas to me, man. Yeah. Yeah. That that underbelly of like Yeah. There are the high rollers, but if you the get other, out of the lane a little bit, yeah. yeah, or these guys like the small time Griff just trying to get a room, yeah, or uh, you know the well, we should go ahead and talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah, that guy, one of the most obnoxious hard characters to even watch that I've ever seen in a movie. It's He's magic so what awful. he does, yeah, He's so awful, and such a fucking dick. There's. I mean, it almost goes without saying what a genius Philip Seymour Hoffman was. Yeah. And I just watched uh, Magnolia at the Cinerama in Seattle. Oh, nice. Recently, they like like they brought it back for a 1999 film festival. Oh, cool. A lot of great movies in 99. Magnolia is one of them. Yeah. And I couldn't help but like, I just got really emotional watching him and... Yeah. I just really miss him as an actor. He's yeah, man. He's so incredible. And you see him in this scene, and he is as hateable as a person could ever be. Yeah. And that he's dead makes you love him in this scene. Yeah. It's such a weird conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way he says fuck when he doesn't hit the hard way... Yeah. Is I know you've said you don't like a Vegas casino, uh-huh. and I have to admit I do love a Vegas casino. Uh-huh. I love gambling; <laughs> it's a ton of fun for me. I'd like to go to Vegas with you. That'd be a that good time. is an actor who knows how that word is said in a gambling context. Yeah, because when you don't hit something, yeah, it is it is shattering. Yeah, it's angry. It's deflated. Do you play craps at all? Uh, I played craps. Yeah, it, craps is. Uh, I never fully understand it. I always just was like, I'm going to learn like four or five bets yeah. and just have fun because That's the craps right way is a to lot do it. of fun. When you and I go to Vegas, we'll roll craps. Okay. <laughs> but the thing about craps that I know you know is, is that it's not just about you. Yeah. You feel a sense of responsibility yeah. for everyone when you're the roller. Especially if you get a little bit hot. And when you're hot for a while yeah. and the money starts flowing to the table uh-huh. and then you crap out... It is. It's. It hurts. Yeah. In an in an almost primal level. Because you've let down everyone. And his fuck in is an example yeah. of that. Like when he releases that, oh, like yeah. you know what a gambler fuck sounds like, and he knew it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the way he's laying into Sydney. Yeah. You feel so bad for Sydney. Yeah. But he's just fucking taking it all on the chin, and he. He bests him in the end. It's the biggest power move you can it's you can the do. The, the table move. maximum. Yeah, like he did that to fucking 
knock him down, didn't he? Yeah. And that the Philip Seymour Hoffman character throws a hundred on the hard way. Yeah. Because that's his maximum. Right. He made him lose all his money. Yeah. Yeah. He oh, drew God. him out and then buried him. That scene was so good. Yeah. Oh man, that scene was good. It gives me chills to talk about. It's it's incredible. Yeah. And it's so emblematic of how great Philip Seymour Hoffman would be throughout his entire career. Yeah. He does so much with very little. Yeah, and I know I've heard P.T. Anderson talk about how much he loved Phil, as he called him. Yeah. And he said that he wrote the part of Magnolia for him. He said because that's as close to Phil as is in real life. Yeah. He's like, he is a sweet, sweet guy. And I always make him play guys like Scotty and Boogie Nights. Yeah. And like this fucking guy. Yeah. And he said, I wanted to give him something where he could be Phil. And that his, his nurse character in Magnolia apparently is like as close as it got to, to the to the man. It's such a beautiful film. It is. And, uh, uh, and like tender. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, I do want to mention one of my other favorite little... And it's such a instructive... Like, there, there's no throwaway shit in this movie. It's uh, a pretty tight hundred minutes, right? Yeah, it's tight. But, like, the uh, what what you would think is a throwaway scene with John C. Riley explaining the pay-per-view scam to Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. But that's so instructive that, like, this guy, he's always on the make. And he's like, oh, here's what you do. Like, yeah. I get two TVs in here, and I unscrew this, and then I plug it into here. And, like, and, you know, it's, it's cool. You get free movies or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it is so quintessentially a dope trying to impress a girl he likes. Yeah, and she's impressed with anything that he's good at. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if she cares. Yeah, like he might as well have been like, "Well, here's my bubblegum card collection." Yeah, and I think, I think we've all felt that way before around someone that we like. Yeah, like I don't know what to say. Right. Other than the thing that I'm a, an expert about. Yeah, and. That whole scene with Gwyneth and him in that hotel room, I think, is so sweet because, like... Oh, that part, yeah. Like, Gwyneth Paltrow in a tank top in his bed... Yeah. ...is chased. Yeah. Even though she is a sex worker. Uh Uh-huh. Like, there's something so pure about their relationship in that moment. Yeah. It's really sweet. It's like two kids. Yeah. Who never had a chance... To be kids like that, probably. Yeah. Um, the scene I thought you were referencing, which we may as well talk about the the scene with yeah. when uh, when she there's has another a, hotel room that they end up yeah in. when she yeah. has a John uh, that um, rips her off and they call Sydney and it's not revealed what's in the room yeah like he won't let him in first of all he's on the other side of the door. Yeah. Like, just let me in. One of the long tracking shots in the film is following Sydney yeah. out of his car, up the stairs of the, the motel, into the room. And there's so much fucking tension yeah. as a viewer. And it had been so long since I saw it, I couldn't even fully remember what had gone on in there. Yeah. And he refuses to turn that camera around for so long. And you're just going like, what the fuck is in there? It's such great restraint. Oh my God. Because you know, you have a set piece there, like the bloody guy in a bed. Yeah. Like that is a story. Yep. And to withhold that from us for for as long long. as it's done. It's really great. As a kid filmmaker, it's like, again, just amazed at the maturity and the restraint that this, this kid had at such a young age. 
Yeah. Unbelievable. That entire scene, uh, it's Gwyneth Paltrow with her face in her hands the entire time. She's acting inside yeah. a bowl made out of her hands. Yeah. God, that it, scene was rough. Like, the knowledge that you know Jimmy has been there before... Yep. ...that is paid off later is also so crucial. Yeah. And the spectrum that Sidney goes through in that scene. He runs yeah. the whole gamut. He is... He's a disappointed scared father. ...scared and angry yep. and, and mad dad. Yep. Yeah, God, that scene is tough. Because John C. Riley is so dumb and desperate. Yeah. And he slaps Clementine. Yeah. And, like, it's just... It's all so hard to watch. Yeah. They're so fucking dumb. And, yeah. and and Clementine is so upset. She's doing that. It's so real, though. She's doing that thing where she's so upset, the, but refuses to be smart about what the reality is. The cruelest thing that Sydney says in the entire film is about, like, the first lesson in sex worker university yeah, is get the money get up the front. Get the money up front. Oof. First thing to teach you at hooker school. Yeah. Yeah, that line is fucking tough. Cause, and it's so withering because he's mm. the papa of the whole thing. And that's the that's the moment he allows himself to go dark. Yeah, yeah, and then you realize they got married. Yeah, the <laughs> Clementine and John get got married, and uh, it's so much uh, it's so much sour followed by sugar too. Because what happens in the scene after that? Uh, Sydney has ostensibly fixed it, and mm -hmm. he's telling them to go to Niagara Falls. Right. And then he does that refrain again. Which the, John C. Riley didn't want to go to because he's been there before. <laughs> that's great. Like the resistance that he puts up to, to yeah. that idea is like and so it's dumb. It's like, dude, fucking are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. But Sidney does the thing again. He's like, I'm giving you everything that I have. Yes. And if you ask, I will give you even more when you need it. Yeah. And, and it's like, do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah. I'm get willing to give you everything that I have. Yeah. So powerful. It really is. It really is. And I don't know whether, like, maybe it's just like a cynicism of modern times, but in the late 90s, I never felt cynical. Like, the first time I saw this film, I never didn't trust him. Yeah. I never didn't think that he would come through mm -hmm. if you were to ask him. But I feel like if you made this movie today, yeah. I think you would always be on guard against that kind of promise from a main character in yeah. a context like this. Yeah, I mean, he kind of even threatens that a little bit. Like, no, um, yeah. this is too much. Yeah, You guys have fucked us up. But you know that he's not going to leave them. Yeah. Uh, because they're his two surrogate kids. Yeah. He throw. I mean, he, there's an air of confidence in how he handles everything. Yeah. And like when he throws that gun down the sewer, like, you know, he's done that before. Yeah. And knows exactly what to do. Yeah. Next. And then, you know, at an hour and 20 minutes into the film, you get the bigger reveal, uh, that, that he has, is, has killed John's father. Yeah. And you know, it's something, yeah. but you kind of forget about it for a little while. And then you're reminded, oh, right, Sydney was a fucking bad guy. Yeah. And, that, and he's responsible for this kid. Just the way Jimmy puts it, like he says so much without saying anything at all. Like, I know people yeah. out there yeah. who told me about you. Yeah. And I don't think the film is specific in any way about what Sydney did out there. Right. 
other than killing John's father. Yeah, you don't know what went down or why. It went you don't down. know to what degree he is connected. Yes, and it doesn't matter because a because a person like Jimmy makes it so menacing. Yeah, that you don't need to know any more than that. Well, he ends up in Reno. That's instructive for a character. Things have gone bad if you're in Reno. Yeah, like living in Reno. Yeah, driving a. Crown Victoria. It's interesting how little Reno is as a character in this film, and Vegas too. Yeah, you really get it on a micro level. Like yeah. you're not, you're never seeing territorial Vegas or Reno shots. Yeah, for sure. You're only in the shitty casino. Uh-huh. You're only in the cars. Yeah. You're only in the hotel rooms. Yeah, you're right. And that could be a function of budget. Right. But I think it's more intentional than that. Yeah. I really think effect. it's about it's. Uh, there's a little bit of claustrophobia. Yeah. Yeah, but from the moment Jimmy. From the moment Jimmy says that, his fate is sealed. And it's because Sydney is scared by it. Yeah. That you're told that you should be scared about this too. Right. And Sydney knows that he has to kill him. Yeah. Like that's the only way around this. He's so desperate for John to not know this. Yeah. Like you really feel that. Yeah. Uh, like with every ounce of your being as a viewer of how important it is that John not find this out. Uh, Sydney has has been the co- he's been the captain of every conversation he's been a part of. Yeah. Except with Jimmy. Yeah. Where he is led around by his nose. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Every character in the movie is um, wants Sydney's approval. Yeah. Even Jimmy, because remember, there's that point toward the end where Jimmy wants Sydney's approval. Even. Yeah. Talking about being the inside guard and that he's. Yeah, he calls he knows, back the parking lot attendant. Yeah, because he knows that Sydney thinks he's fucking yeah. a low life. Yeah, and he wants his approval. Yeah, it angers him. You can tell that's one reason he's doing this. He's pissed off initially that the gun got thrown away, but then he's like trying to impress him again. I've got plenty more guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a weird thing. Yeah, it's like Sydney just has that gravitas. Yeah, that like everyone wants to be uh get his approval there's something really aspirational about his character and i mean that sincerely like like an old person who is as grounded in his own character as he is yeah who is kind legitimately kind yeah and especially like and i've always felt this way like i'm not friends with people who are unkind to people who work in restaurants or who work in retail Mm -hmm. he's that guy he's Mm -hmm. the guy you aspire to be who is who is a good person to people in service right. and industry jobs. Yeah. And that informs a lot about his character yeah. to, to you as a viewer. Yeah, because he has that conversation, that great conversation with Clementine early on. Yeah. When he talks about, you know... What would happen if you weren't so nice? Yeah, and he makes it very clear where he stands. Like, yeah. you don't have to do that with me. You know what, Loki, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in this film is that when someone else calls him captain... Yeah. And he says... That is Clementine's (laughs) name for me. Yeah. I love that moment. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's like, that's that's what my daughter calls me, basically. That's reserved. Well, you know, we find out that he is is responsible for this, and now it all sort of makes sense on why you felt this menace from someone who is really nothing but kind. Yeah. He's capable of more. Yes, he's capable of much, much more. And John's dad is just the tip of the iceberg. You get the feeling. You know, do you think it's best that we never know him? I, I kind of so. do. Yeah, I feel like you are you're able to understand what he might be like through mm-hmm. John. 
And that's all you need. Yeah, because you would lose... It's weird, like, a magic trick of this film is even once you find out about John, you still have sympathy for him. Yeah. Like, oh, it's probably something he didn't even want to do. Maybe he had to do it. Yeah. And if you knew more, and let's say you found out that, that Sidney was a fucking cleaner, or just, you know, yeah, someone for the mob who took out motherfuckers yeah. left and right, you probably would lose some respect for him. Right. But you still... Because you don't know, and and he doles out such little information, you're still able to retain this like sympathy for this guy. Yeah, who ended up in Reno, trying to take care of the kid whose daddy killed. He is a really special character. Yeah, in all of movies, I think he's unique. Yeah, which is why it should have been called Sydney. Agreed. Such a character study. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, you know, uh, and then you know, boy, he fucking takes Jimmy out like a fucking boss, like. Pro <laughs> goes lo- over, sits in that goddamn chair with a, with with Jimmy's gun. Yeah, you know, like he knows exactly what he's doing. There's a moment of vanity in that scene that is so subtle, where Sydney sits in the chair and he's got the he's got the gun. Yeah, and he kind of considers how he looks in the chair. Yeah, Do you notice that part? Yeah, where yeah. he like he sort of like practices aiming. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that is. That's really cool, too, yeah. because this may have been something that he did a long time ago, and right. he just needs to get used to the idea again. Yeah. Right. It's probably been a long time. Really fun. Since he shot a guy. Yeah, and that's Melora Walters as the girl that Jimmy brings home right. after that after that night playing craps. Yeah. And she plays such a little part in this uh-huh. film, and it's a real like blink-if-you're-misser moment. Yeah. But, God, she would go on to do great things. I'm such a huge fan of hers. Yeah, she's great. And I love in that scene, um, never for a second do you think that he's going to kill her. No. You know he's going to let her go because he's been around the block and he knows. Sydney's got a code. He's got a code, but he also knows, like, she's not a threat to him. She's not going to tell. She's not going to tell. She's not going to go to the fucking cops and say, you know, this low-life security guard got killed. She just wants to go home what do you make of sydney very specifically shooting him in the dick oh he did because he? he double taps the chest and then he does go down to the dick oh is that what he does yeah i don't think i caught that i mean you could read it as the body falls but he I, shoots him in the dick i think if you <laughs> i feel like he shoots him in the dick i don't know maybe that's uh it well it could be interpreted a couple of ways maybe that's his signature move if he was a that's hitman, the Sydney. That's the Sydney. <laughs> Two in the head, one in the dick. Yeah. Uh, or just his utter disgust for this guy. Yeah. And and little so little regard that he he neuters him. You know, we talked a lot about like the sound in this film and Clementine's bells being a part of it, but the leather sound that Jimmy comes with, yeah, is such a menacing thing. Yeah, yeah. he's always wearing those gloves. They're uh-huh. always squeaking. Yeah, he's always wearing that jacket. Uh huh. When he enters the room and gets shot by Sydney, like you can hear him move. Yeah, there's that sound of that leather to him. Like yeah, it's. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. When uh-huh. you when you sketch out a character, it's how he looks, how he talks, but also how he sounds. Yeah. Yeah, and Sydney just owns him. Yeah. The whole fucking time. Even yeah. when he... I mean, there is that, that one break 
where Sydney is scared when yeah. he has the gun on him. That's hard you to could watch. Make, but you could write the film paper that he is not, and that's and that's he's playing. And he's, I kind of wondered that because it's so out of character. Yeah, I wondered is he giving him like, all right, I'm going to let him have the power right now and think that he's got me. The way I've always that read it, it is dude. that those were legitimate fears that he was displaying. Oh, really? But I could definitely read it the other way. For sure. Yeah. Because he's fucking He's way never not in control. Jimmy, yeah. And he's always one step ahead. I love how they drive the car to the turnaround in the casino right after that scene. Oh, yeah, Like, yeah. They, they drive it 50 <laughs> feet into the turnaround and get out, and then they go to Sydney's apartment to get the cash. Right. <laughs> and Sydney, too, won't stop... Uh, Smoking in the car too, which is another power move. That is so great. Yeah, a gun to him. Out. Yeah. yeah. He's like, no. <laughs> I'm not doing it. So much fun. Yeah, man. Such a great movie. Uh, it is really great. That last shot, you know, um and then the cat in the diner again with that just that blood on his sleeve. Back to one. Yep, back to one. And he pulls his his suit jacket down to cover the blood on his shirt sleeve. So great. Such a great way to end that movie. I agree. It's really special. Yeah. It's like for a film that is punctuated by the sort of violence that it has. Yeah. It is so quiet and small most of the time. Yeah. And it is really about our core characters yep, and what so they're going study. through. Uh-huh. And it's so mature for a young filmmaker. Yeah. It's just really special. Yeah. I can't wait till we get into Magnolia because I just am now recalling uh william h macy's character in that it's movie. a distillation of these themes yeah like can you make it even more concentrated right and bigger somehow yeah and that's what magnolia does hard eight is a great an- a great answer to the question like what's a film that i haven't seen before that i should right this is frequently my answer to that question yeah for sure yeah and two uh jimmy gator is mentioned in this movie yeah floyd gondoli too all right who's floyd gondoli floyd is it, Floyd is the Philip Baker Hall character in Boogie Nights. Oh, okay. The guy who who wants to meet, Jimmy Gator meet boys, Magnolia. meet girls. They're about to shoot to videotape. Right, right, right. <laughs> and but he's Jimmy uh, and Gator it's and the Magnolia, Colonel. Right? What's that? But he's Jimmy Gator in Magnolia, right? Isn't yeah, that his character's yeah, name? yeah. As the host of the of uh, of the kids show of yeah, the trivia show. Interesting. So he just yeah. brings back those character names. Yeah. Yeah, which is fun. It, it's fun that there's like a like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There is a Paul Thomas Anderson right. Cinematic Universe. Yeah, God, he's a guy that you just wonder what he's going to do next. He's on a very short list for me. Where, uh, wherever, whenever, like it doesn't matter yeah. what the film is, I'm going to go see it opening night. Well, he did these films that uh, kind of have uh, a similar vibe, like Magnolia and Boogie Nights and Hard Eight. I think. They're certainly not the same film. Yeah. But when he, he really took a turn when he started doing things like There Will Be Blood and The Master yeah, is when Punch Drunk Love aside, yeah, uh, which I've already covered on the show, but you and I should talk about it anyway. Agreed. Um, Man, just what what is he, what's he going to do next? I always want to know. Can't wait. And as we've mentioned, he's a young guy. I hope we have 40 yeah. more years of great films from him yeah and he doesn't do one of those things where he's like oh, i'm gonna retire i've made my eight films he seems like and this is like his story he's someone who like his dad bought him the video camera when he was eight like yeah. he's someone who's in it for the love of it 
And that's what makes me confident that he will keep creating as yeah. long as he wants to. And so. it makes me grateful for it because yeah. he's he's a filmmaker. He's doing it for the right reason. Right. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger from iHeartRadio. I travel a lot for work and being a chef and doing all these things, and people ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? Where's a good coffee shop? What's a good museum? So I've always doodled and created lists, and this show is dedicated to that idea. Immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing about that place and what resounds and where are they at and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. We'll get to know Havana, Fogo Island, Newfoundland, Montreal, Austin. We'll even find out what makes Boise, Idaho an international city. That's The Passenger. Subscribe now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, dude. Well, let's, uh, since this is your first appearance, let's do the five questions. Oh, I did not prepare for five questions. So what's it going to be? Did we do this? Did we do this last year? I don't remember. Uh, I think in in a in a friendly fire context we did, but I've never been put on the spot. All right, well let's let's do like it this. again. What's yeah. the uh, what's the first movie you saw in a theater? The first movie that I can remember that seeing in a, a theater of, yeah. was the Keaton Batman, mm. and I remember uh, going to that film with my dad. And correct me if I'm wrong, but was that PG thirteen? I feel like it was PG thirteen. I don't know. I remember that being a thing, uh-huh. and me being younger than thirteen was sort of like a. I feel like my dad was doing the cool dad thing, yeah, like, yeah. like, Spend, hey, sure. this is this is going to be fun. You're going with your dad to see the Keaton Batman, right. and it may be a little deeper of a pool than you're used to, right? And it was so much fun, yeah. And like that was, I think that was the first time. The first, like, I know I saw films in theaters younger. I'm fairly confident my parents took me to see E.T., for example. Right. But, like, the idea that my mind could be fully formed in a way to, like, really appreciate a film yeah. in a theater and get it. Yeah. In a, in a sophisticated way. That was the one that sticks out to me as, like, very formative. Right. All right. Uh, first R-rated movie. Speed. And I snuck into it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember the movie that I bought a ticket to, uh-huh. but I very clearly went with a group of friends and then snuck out of the theater and into Speed. Yeah, I saw that again within the last couple of years and was like, I, I kind of enjoyed watching it. Does it hold up? I haven't seen it in a long time. It's a pretty fun movie. Yeah, I bet it is. I like Keanu Reeves. Yeah. I'll just watch him and whatever now. He was a lot of fun in that movie. Yeah. Dennis Hopper was great. It was good. Yeah. It was a fun movie. Shoot the hostage. Uh, That's right. Um, Number three, will you walk out of a bad movie? Um, Do you have a story? I have. I think I told this on the Friendly Fire show, which was uh, Chris Farley's last movie. Right. Was the only film I've ever walked out of. Remember that now, because it was sad. Yeah, like you could the the struggle was suggested for a while up until then and i 
had been such a fan up to that point. I remain a fan, obviously. Mm-hmm. But like I always, like even his last SNL appearance was really hard to yeah. watch. But that last film, he was so, like he was so shattered in it and was so clearly just hanging on. Yeah. That I, like I didn't want to ever, like you could see his death coming in that film. Yeah. And I did not want to remember him that way. Right. And I left the movie fairly early. Like I, like maybe at the 30 or 40 minute mark, I couldn't, I just didn't want to yeah. see him like that. I wanted to remember all the things I loved about him. Yeah. That's and great. I think that was a, a self-defense mechanism that served me because I have not gone back to that movie and I sure. won't. No. Like I want to remember the good times with him. Yeah. When you guys were pals. I mean, that's, it. it's said all the time, like your favorite SNL cast is the one you went to high school with. And oh, interesting. he was in, that. he was in my cast. Like that's, yeah. that's when it started. And he, I was his and he was mine for, yeah. for the entire way. Um, number four, I tailored to the guest and I'm going to go with, uh, maybe, uh, What film, as a as a director, do you most wish you could have... I, I usually say, what film do you most wish you could have made? But I'll change that up and say, what film do you most wish you could have worked on and been there while it was happening? You're not the director, but like you were there when they made Raiders or something. Wow. That's a really fun question. Shoot. You know, a uh, a film I watch from time to time that I, I think very few people know about or talk about is Forrest Whitaker's Ghost Dog, the Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah, fucking love Ghost Dog. I would really have loved to have seen that interaction between yeah. Forrest Whitaker and Jim Jarmusch. Jarmusch and like... To see where that character came from and yeah. where the tension was between direction and action. Uh-huh. The way of the samurai. That's the first thing that comes to mind. There are probably a sure. hundred films that I would feel no, that way that's about. That's a good answer, though. That's the first one that comes to mind because that is so much fun and such an example of the film that could have gone into the ditch and had been yeah. like, shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, like something to laugh at. Yeah. But that is not a funny movie other than the moments where it's intentionally funny. Right. And I think that is a great command <laughs> of, oh, I love of that man. genre. I'd yeah. love to see him at work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then finally, number five, what, uh, what's your movie going routine? Uh, I like the late nineties were the salad days for me where I would go see three films a week in the smallest theater in Seattle and like cut out of college and go watch them. Because if I remember correctly, you hate when people talk to you in a movie, right? Anymore, I try not to see a film on opening weekend. Right. And I try to go like four weeks later in yeah. a smaller theater where I can sit in the back and like really be undisturbed. So you just I want know, it to yourself. I, th- I want to believe I'm not a crank. Right. But the way I describe myself says crank. Right. Like, I just want to be left alone in a theater that I'm in by myself. Well, maybe you're a movie crank, but you're not a life crank. Yeah. And, like, that's the way I like to see a film. I just want to, I want to be left alone and, and, like, 
I really still sincerely believe in the power of a movie. Yeah. And I like giving myself entirely to it. Right. In a full, like every sense experience kind of way. Yeah. Like I don't want to be talked to. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear the crinkling of someone's candy. Right. I don't want someone farting or shitting in the theater. Right. <laughs> like all of the senses, like uh -huh. I just want... Like, I want to give myself over to it. And yeah. I think my favorite film experiences have been the kind where where that's successful, where yeah, I can very get inside it. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, man. I love this. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll hook up over the, uh, the airwaves remotely. Yeah. And we'll do Boogie Nights next. This is going to be a great project. It is. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Chuck. All right, movie crushers. I hope you like that one as much as I did. And boy, we're we're going to just make this into a filmmaker series because not a ton of people I feel like I could record remotely with and have it be just as good as being in person. But uh, Adam and I definitely are, are friends enough to where we can record remotely. So that's what we're going to do. He's set up there in Seattle. We're going to keep it rolling with uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And uh, I think we may even do Punch Drunk Love, even though... That has already been done uh, at our live Sketchfest show with Tony Hale a couple of years ago. Enjoyed that, but I think we need to stay true to the Filmmaker series and cover them all. So we're going to get going with P.T. Anderson. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to Adam. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Cut4Time. That is the at symbol, C-U-T-F-O-R-T-I-M-E, which is kind of a funny joke now that I think of it. Adam... Uh, Cut for Time would be a good nickname for him. So uh, check him out there, or you can uh, follow the Friendly Fire podcast on Facebook. It's wonderful. Those guys are all my buds, and it's a podcast I listen to every week myself. So if you're into movies, especially war movies, go check out Friendly Fire on the awesome, awesome Max Fun Network. So that is it for me, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this cabin session, and uh, we'll see you next week. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. This season, Notre Dame women's basketball coach Muffin McGraw is battling a losing record. Every game knowing you're supposed to win, that really weighs heavy on your shoulders, and I think I said at one point, wouldn't it be great to be the underdog again? My husband said, be careful what you wish for, and here we are. Listen to The Only Way Is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Robert Evans host of Behind the Bastards, and It Could Happen Here, and uh, generally a guy who spends a lot of time bummed out about the state of the world. So in July of 2019, I traveled to northeastern Syria for a bit of a shot in the arm. And I got it when I discovered members of a feminist, anti-fascist, revolutionary project who are working to build a more equitable society. It's a crazy story, and you can hear it all on The Women's War. Our first episode drops on March 25th. Listen to The Women's War on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.